We, last week, we're in the Gospel of John here. If you're visiting today, we're in the Gospel of John. And today we're taking a step aside to talk about gratitude. But, but last week's message was to worship the Lord in spirit and truth from John 4. And I suggested to you that day that, that the idea of worship in spirit and truth had less to do with what we do in the hour and a half we're in here, but how we live our week. Because Jesus even said in that context, when he, the disciples tried to give him food, he, he said, nope, I have food you don't know about. And, and then when they said, well, who gave him food? What was his response? My food is to do what? To do the will of the Father and to do the works that he gave me. So in other words, it was more important to Jesus to obey his Father than to eat. That's, that's how at the heart of Jesus' soul and life was the will of his Father. So, so in light of that, that was to worship in spirit and truth. That, that's the foundation of worship in spirit and truth I suggested to you last week. Well, today I want to come back to one of those foundational aspects of what it means to walk with God, or foundational aspects of a trait of Christ-likeness, and that is gratitude. Gratitude. And let, let me read to you a verse out of 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. This is kind of a bummer side of gratitude, Okay. So I want to start with a negative, and I, I don't like necessarily doing that, but I want to read to you Paul's description of what's going to happen in the end times. Paul says this, but understand this, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.1, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and he goes on and on. I'm just going to stop there for now. Does this describe possibly the world that you and I live in now? A little bit maybe? Does this describe you and I in any way? It's interesting, we have this holiday called Thanksgiving. And this holiday is goes back in history to when the first settlers came here. That's, that is being challenged to their motives and all that and kind of putting a blight on Thanksgiving. I don't want to go into the politics of that. But I find it interesting in our world today, Thanksgiving is always the fourth Thursday of, of November. A time to stop, gather together with the ones you love, and give thanks. Then what's Friday called? Which is about what? Shopping. And it's advertised the whole week. Completely, not completely, but almost entirely taken away from the point of Thursday. To where now you can do Black Friday shopping on Thursday. Online. So do you see this, this thing that's going on in our culture that minimize gratitude, but maximize some other aspects, and we'll talk about those. So I want to I take you to Colossians 3. So open your Bibles to Colossians 3. And um, 3, 15 to 17 is our primary text. So I'm going to read those to you now. In each verse, it mentions being grateful. It mentions thanksgiving. Let me read those to you, and then we will um, step back and um, look at the context. So Colossians 3, 15 to 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And I say it with me. And be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this is actually, this passage is a crescendo that starts back in chapter 2, where Paul builds an argument of who we are in Christ, who we used to be outside of Christ, and who we've become in Christ. And he brings that to a crescendo to where the last three verses, as he describes what we're called to do, he mentions gratitude, all three verses. So I suggest to you, just like Jesus' perspective on what is worship in spirit and truth is doing the will of God, that for us, what should be at the heart of our worship, at the heart of our daily life, the heart of everything we do, the last verse, whatever you do in word or deed, we do it with gratefulness. And so, we are told from a very young age to be grateful. Think about it. Those of you who have kids, and every one of you were a kid, was a kid, were a kid, whatever. So my child wants something. My kids are all grown now, and they're, they're doing this with their children, payback time. My child wants dessert. Dad, give me some dessert. So I say, and what do you say first? Dad, may I please have some dessert? So I give him the dessert, and then I have to elicit, now what do you say? Thank you. So, so why do we teach our children this? First of all, why isn't it natural for our kids to be grateful? Why do we have to go through routines like this, which by the way, if, if your kids are like mine, it's over and over and over again. Thank you, or please, and thank you. Why do we have to rehearse this? It's, it's not necessarily natural to us. You know, I always say this, and, and, and you know, we don't like the word sin today. Sin is, oh, it's a bad word. It's a four-letter word, although it only has three letters. Um, a synonym for me on sin is selfishness. At the heart of sin really is not your will, but mine be done. So that, that's really the heart of sin, is I'll do it my way, God, not yours. And, and so I want to suggest to you that I want to take this idea of gratitude, we just read those three verses, step back into chapter 2 of Colossians and walk you through it and see that gratitude is a key trait of Christ-likeness. And I want to remind you of our new purpose statement that we came out with this last late summer. So remember, Cornerstone Community Church exists to help one another discover who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. First step, we are here to help one another discover who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. Second step, Help one another grow into Christ-likeness, because that, that is God's goal in our salvation, to make us like Jesus. And third, as we're growing that Christ-likeness, then to go engage a broken world with the hope of the gospel. All of this to the glory of God. So what I want to do today is walk through the Colossians context to show how gratitude is part of that discovering who God is, growing in Christ-likeness, and then taking that gratitude, that attitude of gratitude, which I really don't like that phrase, it just kind of came out, that whole gratitude that should envelop my whole being as I go out to a world that needs to see that gratitude and to 
see my Savior. So let's look at Colossians to do that. Go back to Colossians 2.20. Colossians 2.20. Paul, again, Paul is, is starting an argument here in, in, in all of, most of chapter 2 and 3 to describe what salvation, what Christ has done for you. The, fir- the first part of our purpose statement is to discover who God is and what he's done for you in Christ Jesus. Well, what, he's, what has he done for you in Christ Jesus? We go back to chapter 2, verse 20, and Paul says this, if you have died with Christ, or as ESV, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to his regulations? So he starts an argument here, but the first thing I want you to know is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not just that you say a prayer and you're forgiven. Something fundamentally has happened to you inside. And the first step is you've died with Christ. It's this mystery that I don't fully understand, but it's beautiful to me. When Jesus died on the cross, if you've trusted in Christ, you died with him. Jesus was buried, you were buried with him. There's a third step. It doesn't stop there. If we move on to chapter 3, verse 1, it talks about this new life that we have. See, first, if you've died with Christ... This is how you should see the world. And number three, he continues his argument. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul calls us to act on this truth. Our faith is an active truth. See, if you, if, 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 raise your hand. No, I'm not, not gonna, I'm not gonna embarrass anybody. If you're a Christian here today, you've died with Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here today, The next step that God did to you was he raised you from the dead with Christ. You are a new creature in Christ. So that calls you to action. His command then is seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He drops down to verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. So that begs the question, what are heavenly things that I'm to seek and what are earthly things I'm to put to death? So sometimes seek things above, not on earth. We think, well, that means you, know, you shouldn't be seeking boats and houses and fine clothes. That may or may not be true. It depends on where God's leading you. But that's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about character here. So seek things above where Christ is here at the right hand of God. Then in chapter 5, or chapter, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he describes it. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And he goes on. So, have you died with Christ? I think more people have. Have you died with Christ? Then you've been raised with Christ, correct? If that's who you are, then there's a, a call on your life to seek the things above where Christ is seated, not things on earth. The, these virtues here that are actually vices, Put those to death. There's a command upon us. Seek what's above and put to death what is earthly in me. Verse 8. But now you must put them all away. He first says put them to death. Now he, he uses this term put them away. He actually uses a term about taking clothes off. Okay, it's the imagery here of clothing myself. Take all that off. Put it away. And he, he describes more. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So let me go back to, why do we have to teach our children to say please and thank you? It's not natural to them. It's not natural to them because they're selfish, just like you and me. Why do we have to put these things off? 
Because these are natural to us. Who we were in Adam, the person who died in Christ, actually enjoyed living the life of covetousness, anger, wrath, sexual immorality. That stuff doesn't take any effort to do. Would you agree? I know, I know that when I, I, when I worked at a warehouse, I worked with a lot of young men. When I was a young man, I worked with a lot of young men. We'd be back in the truck loading trucks together. And, and one of the guys I worked with um, so had such a foul mouth, constantly foul mouth. F-bombs everywhere, using the Lord's name in vain all the time. And um, I remember one time, I, I said, you know, he became friends. So I, I, wasn't, I wasn't being judgmental. I was just trying to, to, to be an encouragement. I think my motive was to encourage him. I said, you know, you sure use the Lord's name a lot. And you sure use the F-bomb a lot. He goes, no, I don't. And, and he goes, he said this, he said this to me. Every time I use the Lord's name, I want you to poke me in the chest. After about two days, man, the guy was sore as can be. He didn't, he didn't have any clue what was coming out of his mouth. It was default to him. And, and, then, and then, you know, with young people, when I teach them, I say, you know, anyone can be foul-mouthed. It, it just flows from us. Be creative with your adjectives. Learn new vocabulary. It takes effort now. And as Christians, that's what Paul is telling us to do. Put that off. In fact, put it to death. Kill it in you. Put it off. But then look what he says here in verse 9. Oh, he gives on. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So the clothing, put off the old person, who you used to be. That's not who you are anymore. There's this remnant called the flesh. I really want to go back to that person. In my default, if I relax and I forget who I am in Christ and I don't put the flesh, the deeds, put the death, the deeds of the flesh, I'll go back to that behavior by reflex. So put it off. And then put on who I am in Christ. Put on the new nature, which verse 10 is foundational. And put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So first of all, back to 1 John 1.3. Who created us? Well, specifically in 1 John 1.3. Christ did. Christ is our creator. Okay? So now we're being renewed to the image of our creator. I'm being made like Jesus Christ. I'm to put on his character. It's an active thing we choose every day. If I don't actively choose it, I'll revert back to the deeds of the flesh, Paul calls them, the characteristics of this world. And it's not a, hard, it's not a far fall from any one of us. If we, if we forget who we are, give in to those things, it's not long before we are right back in the middle of it, neck deep. This isn't a one-time thing. I need every day get up and put off the old man and put on the new that's being made like Jesus. This is going somewhere into gratitude, trust me. That last verse, though, here, that is in this image of the Creator that we collectively and individually are being made into His image, is a new identity that's stronger than any economic, racial, ethnic, socio background we have. 
So when it says that, in this new identity is neither Greek nor Jew. Is it saying your Greek heritage or your Jew, Jewish heritage is not important? No, it's not saying it's not important. It's saying it's not supreme. What is supreme is being in the family of Jesus and becoming like him. I should not raise up my ethnic background above my identity in Christ. We celebrate our backgrounds, everybody. Celebrate them. But they're not our core identity anymore. My core identity is not things of this earth. It's Jesus Christ. Verse 12 now. Now we get to the heart of the matter. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Stop there. I want you to look up the, the, the slides. I, I read this in every wedding I do. And I'll show you why in a moment. This isn't directly addressing marriage. It's, it's addressing how we live as the people of God together. And I, applied it, I apply it to a husband and wife coming together as one. And do and you know, this is a sidebar, that Genesis chapter 2 says husbands and wife become one, right? Do you know there's only one other relationship in Scripture that becomes one? Jesus and his church. Those are the only two times in Scripture that I have found where two become one. So your marriage reflects Jesus' love for his church. We need to remember that. So that was free. <laughs> Put on then, not as a Greek or a Jew, not as a slave or a free, not as a barbarian or a Scythian. I'm not even sure what that is. I should have looked it up. Not as any other identity this world wants to call you to, to, to raise up in your conscious thinking. But put on as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved. That's how God sees you. This, is, this needs to go deep in your heart and mind. When you wake up in the morning and you start the day, you say, who am I? Am I that guy that fails all the time? Am I that guy that's told I'm no good? Or am I that guy that really thinks he's really good and everyone else should too? Or am I that person that God says, I choose you, Tony, to be my child. And I declare you as holy. And I'm working that holiness in your character every day. And Tony, you are my beloved. Does that affect you? God calls you his beloved. That, that should floor us. That my primary relationship with God is no longer a rebel or a sinner. It is chosen, holy, and beloved. That should go so deep that what flows out of me now is put on as that person you chosen, holy, beloved children of God, put on compassionate hearts, kindness. This is the part that applies to marriage and everyone else. Humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. So one translation says putting up with one another. I want to give you a little insight to pastor's thinking here. I'm going to get in trouble for this one. 
those in ministry have this expression. We're supposed to love everybody, right? And I do. Yeah, right. <laughs> but there are people in all of our lives, this isn't unique to me, every one of us have people in our lives that we're called to minister to. But we call them I just lost it. Oh, I hate this. God is, God is dealing with me right now. Um, that's weird, Matthew. It just left me. Maybe I shouldn't say it then, huh? You're saying I should say it, Phyllis? I shouldn't. I'm listening to Phyllis. Um, yes, that's, I'm, you know, this is embarrassing. I'm sorry. When your mind shuts down, it, it, it's, anyways, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. Now, there's people get on your nerves, do they not? And what are you called to do? Ignore them? Kick them out of your life? To put up with them. In fact, it means hold them up. Bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord also has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, and it all wraps it up in love. So that's where Paul's going in this passage. So we've just did a quick survey from chapter 2, verse 20, up to chapter 3, verse 14, to describe what this new life in Christ. You died with Christ, amen? And if you died with him, what will you done? What happened next? Raised with him to walk a new life, put to death the things of the flesh, the things of this world, and put on Christ. Because that's your identity. You are beloved, holy, and chosen by God. So be the person of Christ, that compassionate, kind, merciful, loving, forgiving, putting up with others, all wrapped up in love. That's the context now that we get to Colossians 3, 15 through 17. So that was all to introduce this. Now let's walk through one verse at a time. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Often when we see this concept of peace of Christ, we tend to think of an emotional well-being. I feel at peace. I would say sometimes scripture uses it that way. I would say Philippians 4 talks it, uses it that way. But here it's not talking about that at all. It's talking about lack of enmity. Christ brought peace. He, he created peace between you and I. Or Ephesians chapter 2 is beautiful. Go read it carefully from 11 on to 22. It says there that Christ made the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace between Jews and Gentiles, and then took that thing called the church and reconciled us to the Father. The, 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 the procedure there is he, he brought people together and made peace, then made peace with the Father. So we, Christ's death, has brought peace to you and I. There should be no enmity between you and I. So I want you to think now, think now about people in your life who belong to the family of God that you're not at peace with. 
This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12 about verse oh, 16, 17, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all people. See, as, as redeemed people, we have no occasion to say, I refuse to reconcile. I will not be at peace with my brother or sister. But you know, people tell me that. After people sit in my office, come they ha- I have a problem with so-and-so. Well, let's get him in here and let's reconcile. I'm not going to reconcile with them. It's not an option. It's not an option. Christ died to reconcile us. It's not an option that we say I won't reconcile with each other. So part of this new life is that the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. How thankful are you for your brothers and sisters in Christ? I want you to think about that. Do you have relationships in the body of Christ that are absolutely essential to your daily life? Do you tell them how thankful you are for them? They need to hear it. How many, when you get in the mail, you open a little card, and it's a thank you card from somebody? How does it make you feel? As a pastor, I get lots of them, and I love them. Now ask me how many I write. (laughs) I love hearing, thank you, pastor. I need to learn to say, thank you, Ladies and gentlemen, teenagers, children, thank you for what you do for me. So that's the first context of be thankful, the body of Christ. Second one, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. First, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Then it describes what that looks like. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Very interesting. If you went to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 and 20, that context, the exact same words are used, but it says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The same results. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and be filled with the Spirit have the same results, suggesting a deep continuity between the filling of the Spirit and the word of Christ dwelling in you. So what's the word of Christ? Absolutely. As a person, he's called the Word. He has also taught his disciples, and what they do? They wrote it down. So it's the person of Christ in you and the truth he taught to dwell in us richly. And that, that begs the question, do we see this as riches? Because you pursue what is of, you perceive as wealthy, do you not? And the end result is this heart of worship, teaching and admonishing one another, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The last one, then I'm going to get the summary. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what does it mean to do something in the name of Jesus? In the name of the Lord Jesus. So, we're supposed to pray in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? Pardon me? Character, okay. So, we we talked once before here 
and, and Rob is hitting on it, about the name means the character, works, and reputation. That Jesus' name communicates all these things about who he is. Um, again, let's compare Scripture. If you go to 1 Corinthians 10, 31, there it says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So here it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do in the name of the Lord Jesus. There, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the mundanest things of life, do to the glory of God. I'd suggest you to do something in the name of Jesus is to do it to his glory. See, we, we have this, um, this formula in prayer. You say, you know, we say, we open up with, hopefully we open your prayers with thank you, God. We give our requests, and how do we close it? In the name of Jesus. It's become kind of like a, um, a stamp. My prayer is valid because I said his name. And, and Or, have you ever been criticized after a prayer? Oh, but you didn't say in the name of Jesus. Have you ever thought, oh, I didn't close in the name of Jesus? I've thought that. I had one pastor tell me one time, you must open your prayer in Jesus' name and close your prayer in Jesus' name because otherwise Satan steals your prayer and God never hears it. I, I didn't argue with them. I thought, I, I'm, not, I'm leaving that one alone. <laughs> so in the name of Jesus, obviously, is, is part of the words we use. But the concept behind it, to do all things that I do in word or deed, whether I eat or drink, everything I do, I do for him. Giving thanks to the Father through him. So this is Paul's Admonition. In fact, Paul uses the words grateful, gratitude, and the verb thank you, thanksgiving. He uses it more than almost all the other biblical writers put together. It's at the heart of who he is to be grateful. So let's, let's try and apply this now. Paul talks about putting off, putting on. Put off the old man, put on the new. Put off the deeds of the flesh, put on the fruit of the spirit. Put off, put on. I want you to think of sunglasses now, okay? Now, all of us have had the experience. We're driving down the road on a beautiful, clear day, and we're in the mountains, and there's green grass and beautiful trees, and we have our sunglasses on. And we just out of curiosity, we, we take them down and we look. And what's the difference between looking at that beautiful scenery without sunglasses and putting the sunglasses on? It's not, if they're, if they're good sunglasses, it's not the, with the sunglasses on, elaborate the beauty. Am I the only one that does that? Do you need to buy new sunglasses? <laughs> we all have had that experience. So I want to talk about the glasses, putting glasses on of gratitude. That Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. I have to have the right glasses on to see my circumstances as part of the hand of God in my life, or I will not be grateful for it. So what are some other glasses we could put on that take away our gratitude? What are the, some of the things that are the enemy of gratitude? How about the glasses of entitlement? You can't be grateful 
for what you believe you are owed. Think about that. Now, we can talk all day long about our teenagers. <laughs> but where'd they learn it? <laughs> it, it? It's part of the human nature, an entitlement. But God, don't you owe me this? And in the end, what are you owed by God? Let, let me restate that. What have you earned from God? The wages of sin is... That's what you've earned. But what has he given you? Life and in abundance, we're learning from John. So an idea of entitlement, God owes me nothing good, but he just lavished it upon me. So it has entitlement caused us to not see the goodness of God in our lives. We need to change those glasses. What was the word we talked about? discontentment that goes with entitlement discontentment is i don't have enough i don't like what i have i like what he has the grass is greener on the other side of the fence god to not see your world and your circumstances as coming through his hand to make you into his son's image all the good and the bad i want their life i want children like theirs i want a spouse like theirs i want no spouse you know, all the things we do in marriage that we wonder, you know, what are we doing here? Discontentment will kill you, and it destroys gratitude. A passage that I still haven't got figured out in my walk is 1 Timothy 6, where Paul says, if you have food and covering, with that you shall be content. Well, I'm going to tell you, my level of contentment requires a lot more than food and covering. Something God's working on me. Everything else is abundance and a gift. How about indifference and apathy? The whatever attitude. Doesn't really matter anyways. If you're indifferent to God or to your life, I want you to go back up to Colossians 3.12. What does it say? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's who you are. If we get that into our head, we can't be indifferent. You can't be indifferent when you know how God sees you. Not how he sees you, how he's made you. I wonder if sometimes ignorance gets rid of our gratitude. We just don't understand what God has done for us. Part of the purpose statement of this church is to help one another discover who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. Are we ignorant of who God is and what he's done for us? I want you to tell me something good in your life. Wow. You just had a whole weekend to think about it. I hear something over here. What is it? I swore you said gambling. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, family. <laughs> Health. Food, our country, thank you, peace, what kind of peace, Dick? Okay. Living in Tahoe, as opposed to, I thought you were picking on your uncle there in Minnesota, you know, so um, 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 
So all those things. We, we could go on and on. I, I'm not, I, I, I know when a pastor asks you to speak back, then he tells you you're wrong is, is a dangerous thing to do. All those are wonderful. I want you to listen to James chapter 1, 16 through 18. The source of everything good in your life. Okay? That's what James says. Do not be deceived. The deception is the result of ignorance. When you're ignorant, you can be easily deceived. So what is truth here? Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Every good thing in your life comes from the hand of God. And it gives a, a beautiful imagery here if we'd stop and meditate on it. From the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So just think during your day as the sun comes up, comes up from the east, goes to the west, and all day long the shadows are changing, are they not? All day long. So that, that's just part of our normal life. It takes what we know to be normal. Then James turns it into this thing with God. Do you know what the word zenith means? Zenith is the highest point in the sky the sun's at. But the sun is always there, and there is no shadow shifting with God. He's always illuminating everything the same. There's no variation with our God. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He does not change. He's the giver of everything good in your life, in my life. So, so when I, I, and I, this is not simply because my wife's sitting in the front row and she's going to say, don't talk about me in services, but I do anyways. <laughs> to me, she's one of the greatest gifts God has ever given me. She's, she, <laughs> if I had time to tell you, and someday I will, she saved my life. God, she was God's instrument to save me. I am so grateful for her, and I try and tell her that all the time, and I thank God for her. I like to say every day, but probably not, but close. Understand everything you have in your life you call good comes from God ultimately. And I know when I say this, I've said this before here, and I've told other people this, and I've heard people say, but Tony, I've worked very hard for what I have. And I said, and I said of course you have. And God puts you in a circumstance where your hard work paid off. There's people who work way harder than you and I in this world that eat one meal a day. And so we've been mightily blessed. So gratitude should be something that because who I was in Adam, someone lost in rebellion against God, that person died with Christ. When Christ was raised, I was made alive with Christ. And, and for me, in April 1979, I believed, and that life was given to me. And I became a new person that, that month. I can't remember the day. I became a new person that now God is working all day, every day, to work the character of his son in my heart and mind, to make me like Jesus. And one of the core characteristics of Christ is gratitude so 
How many of you say grace before dinner? Do you ever wonder why they call it grace? Okay, exactly. Jesus gave us that grace. But do you know what the word grace means? Grace is the root word for thankfulness. The verb, I thank you, is eucharisto. It is the verb to give thanks well. Jesus broke the bread of communion. What did he do? He gave thanks. The Greek word is eucharisto there. That's where we get the word eucharist. At the heart of gratitude is a simple thing. Every day when you eat a meal, what do you do? You give thanks. In fact, probably half the times in the New Testament the word thanks is given, whether the, the noun or the verb, it's in the context of eating. We give thanks. So next time you say grace, understand. Oh, by the way, people say, Tony, would you bless the food? I said, I wish I could. <laughs> it's either good or bad. Nothing, nothing I'm going to say is going to change it. <laughs> but I'll give thanks for it. So, so that's, that is, giving thanks at f- meals is a, is a foundational opportunity to remember who is the source of our blessing. So, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I've read a lot on this. It doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. Think of some circumstances in your life that were utterly caused by evil. Okay? Do you thank God for that evil in your life? But in the midst of those hard times, you give thanks in all circumstances. Because God is using every circumstance in your life. And I want you to get this into your head. We'll eventually get there in John, where Jesus talks about that you are in the Father's hand and no one can snatch you out of his hands. You're secure in his love. So I use that imagery to say I'm in the Father's hands all the time. And everything in life that happens to me comes through his fingers. He allows certain things. Causes some, allows others. I'm not sure how to to define everything that happens, whether he caused it or allowed it. I don't have the wisdom there. But nothing comes to my life that didn't go through his hands first. Also, nothing comes to my life that his own son didn't experience in some way. And all of it is designed to move me towards Christ-likeness. Therefore, in all circumstances, I can give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. So what was the will of God to Jesus in in John chapter 4 last week? It was his food. My food is to do the will of God. It should be the same for us. And the end result, no matter what the circumstance is, thank you, Lord. Father, we do thank you. Increase our capacity, Father, as far as knowing you, who you are, Give us a fuller vision of that, Lord, so that we can have a a greater capacity for gratitude. Give us a fuller understanding of what Christ did for us so we can be grateful to him. Give us a revelation of what it means to have the Spirit of God dwelling in us and the power and the new life he has given us to increase our gratitude. And Father... Help us to be truly grateful to one another and to tell each other regularly, I'm thankful for you. In Christ's name we give praise.